0: It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz
1: every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox.
2: I'm Ashley Webster. I'm Kennedy. I'm Jason Chaffetz, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Tuesday, May 23rd, 2023. I'm Dave Anthony. There's a new runner on the road to the White House, Tim Scott, who says he was a broken kid from a broken home. Now the only black Republican in the Senate wants to be president. I mean,
3: he does disrupt the narrative of the left. and. And he does so in a positive spirit, with an optimistic message about what the country can be.
1: I'm Jessica Rosenthal. The intelligence community says they have to have this spying tool, but they need Congress to reauthorize it. Will growing skepticism of the FBI, beliefs of political bias and misuse of this tool derail the effort?
0: There's clearly people in positions of leadership, both past and some present, who have become politicized and there's no room for politics in the FBI. And I'm
4: Andy Puzder. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown.
2: Tim Scott is running, hoping to go from the Senate to the White House. I'm living proof
5: that America is the land of opportunity and not a land of oppression.
2: Launching his presidential campaign in South Carolina, where Scott grew up poor, And his grandfather, he says, was forced to quit school in third grade to pick cotton.
5: But my grandfather said to me, son, you can be bitter or you can be better, but you can't be both. Now,
2: Tim Scott is the only black Republican in the Senate.
5: Joe Biden and the radical left are attacking every single rung of the ladder that helped me climb.
2: Especially, Tim Scott says, his Christian faith.
5: I will be the president who stops the far left's assault on our religious liberty. I will preserve one nation under God. But Senator Tim Scott is getting
2: into a Republican race that former President Trump leads by far so far. What does the architect think of the senator? He's a quite impressive personality. Karl Rove helped get George W. Bush elected president twice. Former Deputy White House Chief of Staff and Senior Bush Advisor, now a Fox News contributor.
3: He knows what the American dream is because he's been part of that and uh, exceptional communicator. And we'll see how it goes. But we've now got an exciting new entrant into the race.
2: Optimism. He's trying to be an optimist for conservative values, he says, and hopeful for the country that what America did for him, it can do for all of us. Is that a message that resonates in the current political world?
3: I think it does. I mean, I think our politics is angry, and people. I think some politicians misread that, saying if if people are angry about the state of the nation and and concerned about its future and upset with their political opposition, the way to deal with that is to make it even more angry and more fearful and, uh, and more advers- adversarial. And, and instead, you know, in moments like that, we've had people emerge in politics before. Who understood that the way to to respond to that is by striking a note of optimism? We had a uh, country was in bad shape in the nineteen seventies: double digit inflation, double digit interest rates, double digit unemployment. And along comes a guy who, you know, makes it clear he disagrees with what Jimmy Carter is doing. But Ronald Reagan called us to, you know, be that city on the shining uh, hill. And uh, I, I think that there was a very Reaganist approach by Tim Scott.
2: So here he is getting into a race dominated, of course, by former President Trump, and Tim Scott in polls, obviously, he's just entered the race, but he's been around for a few months, you know, dipping his toe in. If he's even included in a poll, he gets low single digits. How do you go from here and climb up well, by laying out what you think is important and what you intend to do about it. I
3: mean, he uh, he talked about uh, you know the getting control of the border, taking on the challenge posed by China, talking about uh, you know making the American economy stronger and more prosperous for everyone, uh, rebuilding our military so that the world again respects us, uh, and then talking about the kind of opportunity that we can we can provide as a such a free economy and such a free nation, but only if we you know stand true to our values. You know, I thought the closing was particularly effective when he talked about how the left fears him as a candidate. And as a result, they've attacked him in a pretty personal and pretty vicious way. When I cut your taxes, they call me a prop. When I refunded the police, they called me a token. When I pushed back on President Biden, they even called me the N-word. I mean, he does disrupt the narrative of the left. And he does so in a positive spirit with an optimistic message about what the country can be.
2: But how much time... Does he have in the spotlight? We already have this week. It's expected that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis will file his paperwork, getting ready to make his run. And he's second to Donald Trump in most of the polls. So how much room is there for Tim Scott to get media attention when DeSantis is next?
3: Well, remember, it's not just national media attention. It's also media attention in uh, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina. He's going to juice it a little bit. He's got an advantage others don't have, and that is he's got $22 million in his campaign account that he can spend, and he's spending about five or six million of it on advertising in the early states. So he's going to have a little bit of a bump, but the real bump is going to come as a result of hard work in those early states and by an extraordinary performance in the debates that begin in August.
2: Iowa may be a better road for him. And I ask you this because. They have a lot of Christians, evangelical voters in Iowa. Tim Scott has had support. He has that Christian base. Is he an attractive candidate? Obviously, former President Trump had the evangelical support. What's it like going into this campaign, though?
3: Well, uh, the great thing about Tim Scott is he is a believer and he tries to live his life according to his beliefs. Think about this, I think he quoted the Bible three times in in an entirely appropriate way. He talked about going to a small, you know, getting a football scholarship at a Christian school. He said, that's where I learned that Jesus was my life and football was just a game. I found my true hope in the words of Ephesians 3.20, him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or imagine. So he talks about it with conviction and clarity and comfort. And I think that came across strongly. So, yeah, Iowa, particularly northwest Iowa, there are a lot of evangelicals and uh, they're looking for somebody who shares their values on the issues, but also somebody who shares their values and their personal conduct in their life.
2: Now, a Trump hack has basically said that DeSantis wobbling a little bit opens the field up. More candidates can come, more Republicans and the race for second place is on. The former president's very much focused on the polls, and they're right about that so far,
3: right? To me, this is sort of a sign of weakness, not a sign of strength. First of all, the polls are going to tighten. Right today, Donald Trump is ahead, and he's ahead by a bunch. And the reason he's ahead is that everybody knows about him. But even then, he's not running away with it about half the people, depending on the poll, have already chosen somebody else or say they're undecided. If you take a look inside the numbers, a bunch of people are committed to Donald Trump today because, well, that's the only guy they really know a lot about. That will change as people get out there and move around the country. uh, And particularly in those early states, you go look at the early states and the president standing in particularly like Iowa, New Hampshire is not as strong as it is nationally. And why? Because in Iowa, New Hampshire, they've already begun to pay attention to the early to the people who have been coming to the state and, and moving around. And second of all, he's punching down. He's the former president. Why is he attacking DeSantis? Why is he saying, you know, uh, you know Ron's sanctimonious? Why is he paying attention to, to to Tim Scott getting in the race? You know, could have, it, it makes it look like he's afraid of competition. And instead, he ought to be ignoring him and talking about what it is that he wants to do if given a second term. And uh, that's about the last thing he appears to want to talk about, though. I'm, I'm mystified by it.
2: Now, the former president has hit Ron DeSantis hardest since Florida's governor has been the closest Trump competitor in second place in most Republican polls.
0: We must reject the culture of losing that has infected our party in recent years. The time for excuses is over.
2: Talking in Iowa earlier this month about GOP election setbacks in 2018 and 20 and 22. The other day in New Hampshire, Governor DeSantis said he's the one with a winning track record. We had
0: a big wave in Florida, swept in massive numbers in the legislature. We did well up and down the ballot.
2: And DeSantis is trying to overcome a slew of negative media coverage ahead of his expected presidential campaign paperwork filing this week. That the Florida governor's momentum is stalled, he's not personable, and is losing culture wars he's waging. Carl Rove is not buying any of that. Look, every candidate
3: running for president is going to make missteps. The question is, do they learn from him? So everybody's saying, well, look at him. He's not really connecting on a personal level. Well, he goes to Iowa. Well, first he goes to New Hampshire. Largest fundraiser in the history of the Republican Party. Spends the before the dinner. Doesn't sit down at the head table. Spends the, day, the evening working every table. Gives a heck of a speech. Gets interrupted by protesters. Handles that with good humor. And then when the dinner's over, spends an hour shaking hands, you know, giving autographs and, you know, appearing in selfies. And I'm thinking, this guy understands what he needs to do. He then goes to Iowa, and and it is in northwest Iowa at a a longstanding uh, uh, summer picnic hosted by um, Congressman Fenstra, Randy Fenstra. And and there he is flipping pork burgers for everybody. Uh, And then goes to the other opposite side of the state and is interviewed by the state party chairman with his wife on the stage. and The two of them are interviewed by the state party chairman. And it gets personal and funny and warm and revealing. And then he makes a a surprise stop at a at a barbecue joint near near the site of President Trump's uh, canceled uh, rally. That showed me this guy's uh, understands what it takes to get things done.
2: Of course, we have Nikki Haley and Asa Hutchinson there in the race, Vivek Ramaswamy's in the race, Larry Elder's in the race, and you might even have former Vice President Pence, Chris Christie, and and others who, who could possibly join. It is getting more crowded. So for them and for all these candidates battling Trump and or DeSantis, what do you do in the summertime? Just go to Iowa, New Hampshire over and over again?
3: Well, go to Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada, and to a lesser extent, South Carolina, because that's fourth in a a row. Uh, You make efforts to articulate a message that drives attention to you and drives home that you're the best candidate, and you raise money, and you hold on to as much of your money as you can, because, uh, you know, that's, that's
2: critical. So, of the two, Tim Scott, Ron DeSantis, this week making big news potentially in this race. Which one do you think is poised to do better.
3: I hate to be evasive, but I don't know. And I'll tell you why. Nobody is prepared for what they're entering into. Nobody. None of these people are ready for what's coming. But how they react to it and how they handle themselves on the campaign trail and whether they get better and learn and grow is really going to be, you know, the question of whether or not that they become the winner. And I think the American people desire a change. That's why we see in all this polling that people want somebody other than Trump and Biden to be on the ballot in the the fall of 2024.
2: Carl Rove, Fox News contributor, former deputy chief of staff and senior advisor for President George W. Bush. Great to talk to you. Thank you so much.
3: Thanks for having me. A lot of fun.
5: From the Fox News Podcasts Network.
1: I'm Janice Dean, Fox News senior meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.
4: This is Andy Puzder with your Fox News commentary. Coming up.
1: Intelligence officials have already begun the full court press on reauthorizing a part of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, known as Section 702. Director of National Intelligence Avril Haines told the House Select Intelligence Committee's Worldwide Threats Hearing back in March, Section 702 provides unique intelligence on foreign targets. Section 702 was originally enacted to enable the U.S. government to quickly collect on the communications of terrorists located abroad The authority allows the IC to acquire foreign intelligence from non-U.S. people located outside of the United States who are using U.S. electronic communication service providers. But it turns out U.S. people, citizens, us... We got caught up in searches quite a bit with this warrantless surveillance tool. A newly unsealed FISA court judge's opinion from last April reveals 278,000 abuses of this authority in 2020 and 2021.
0: We now know the FBI used the tool on people connected to the civil unrest following the death of George Floyd on the streets of the United States. Those involved
1: in the January 6th Capitol attack even political donors. Fox's Justice Department correspondent David Spunt. So getting Congress to reauthorize this authority may be a bit of a harder sell. Democrats like New York Congressman Jerry Nadler and Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon insist even more reforms are needed, even if last year's reforms resulted in a drop in this tool searching American names. Republicans are infuriated over what they see as the politicization of the FBI. Last week, Judiciary Committee Chair Jim Jordan of Ohio held a hearing during which four FBI whistleblowers testified.
3: I never swore an oath to the FBI. I swore an oath to the Constitution.
1: Do you believe that the FBI is purposefully hostile to you for that reason to keep agents from speaking up? Yes. Yes, That question. Yes. Democrats dismissed the men as being politicized themselves. But something else was released this month angering Republicans. Special Counsel John Durham's report about the FBI's investigation into then-presidential candidate Donald Trump, finding the FBI failed to uphold its mission of strict fidelity to the law, never had any evidence of collusion with Russia, and relied heavily on leads provided by Trump's opponents. So now that we know the FBI had improperly surveilled Americans, will Democrats and Republicans reauthorize this FISA tool?
0: My initial response to this was this should never happen. It's certainly a big deal whenever the FISA rules are violated.
1: John Yannarelli is a retired FBI special agent.
0: It's very specific. We're supposed to be looking at foreign targets. And when these tools are being used for the convenience of those doing the investigations, that's the wrong reason. It's never what Congress intended.
1: That's interesting. You're saying it might have been used for convenience. So that so in other words maybe some agents were tasked with investigating certain things and they just decided to use this search tool to what, make their investigation easier?
0: I think when the FISA tools are looked at by agents and through their training, it's seen as a vehicle to conduct an investigation, but there's very very strict guidelines. It's not my belief that FBI agents would be purposely misusing tools. There is a whole array of investigative tools available to agents. What we have to be careful about is using the right tools in the right situation. You essentially have a buffet of different things you can select for an investigation. The FISA surveillance techniques should be limited strictly for those types of investigations for which they were designed, namely looking at foreign nationals that have a direct interest against the United States and not U.S. So citizens. The,
1: yeah. So the FBI was saying, you know, this was really uh, probably these were really probably cases of ignorance on how to run searches and queries. Misunderstandings, I think, was the word they used about how to run them. Does that strike you as likely? Because because many of these searches were apparently made around the time of George Floyd protests relating to the participation in January 6th. It, I, I'm. I'm. I think that brings to mind, for for many of us who are thinking, well, if this is a tool that you're supposed to be using to suss out and find people involved in foreign plots, and these are George Floyd protests and January sixth riots, then where's the nexus? Where's the link to, I guess, the the foreign part, if you will?
0: It's not inconceivable that doing domestic investigations, there may be a foreign nexus. Many protests we see in the U.S., there are frequently foreign nationals and even the interests of foreign governments to promote unrest in the United States. So investigations can start in using FISA tools for that. The problem will be when it starts bleeding over when you're looking at purely U.S. citizens. I can see how that may happen, but it's never supposed to happen. That's why they need safeguards in place. So
1: they're saying that there are now these safeguards in place, that since the since all of this was uncovered in 2020 and 2021, that they have put in new rules that's supposed to make it much more difficult logistically to actually even execute a search um, in this manner. Do you believe, I, I know you're, you're former FBI, but do you believe those, I guess, new rules or um, new processes are sufficient or or not?
0: So with Director Ray having put in certain guidelines and rules in place to try to prevent abuses. It's better, obviously, than what they had, which was clearly not enough. But it's yet to be seen. We have to see, are there going to be continued abuses? Are there ways to get around it? And again, it's not even necessarily bad intent. It's simply not understanding what the rules of the road are and what you can and can't do. There also needs to be, in addition to these rules, there needs to be training for the agents who are using them.
1: Yeah. Let's pivot a little bit because last week some of the these whistleblowers who um, Congressman Jim Jordan of Ohio has said uh, have come to Republicans, they openly testified as we saw and depending on which side of the political aisle you fall on, you either believe them and think the FBI has become uh, politicized or you just say, well, these guys are the, the politicized ones. What did, What did you think of the hearing and what these men had to say?
0: So I think some of the issues brought forth are certainly serious concern, but there are also issues with those individuals as well. Uh, For example, there are allegations of having lost clearances because of the manner in which they released information, etc. Everybody has to stick to the same rules. I think the fundamental issue is the rank and file of the FBI. The men and women are out there to do a good job. However, There is clearly people in positions of leadership, both past and some present who have become politicized. And there's no room for politics in the FBI.
1: Do you still have contacts at the FBI? People you speak with, I'm not asking you to like name names, but do do you get the sense that other people feel the way those four men do who, who did testify? Is there some sort of underlying vibe at the at the FBI among those you're in contact with? I understand it would be anecdotal.
0: I can tell you that agents that I continue to communicate with, as well as support employees, have talked about the mission is still of paramount to the men and women of the FBI. But there are those that have this political leaning and they feel that the FBI has changed. We used to be absolutely agnostic when it came to politics. Now you're hearing more of it creep into the mission, that has to stop if the American people can count on the FBI to be protected and to ensure the safety of the United States.
1: Now, the Durham report also recently came out, right? And and that's another one where it depends. Your, your reaction would probably depend on where you fall politically. But Mr. Durham did conclude um, with regards to the FBI's investigation into then um, former President Trump. That the FBI really shouldn't have relied on the sources they relied on to pursue this investigation uh, against Trump and the, and the so-called Russian collusion theory. I, I wonder in your mind when when you consider the, the Durham report's conclusion and the, whatever the whistleblowers had to say – what should the American people sort of take away from that with if they if we take the, the partisanship away for a minute? Obviously, Republicans are very suspicious, but now some Democrats are suspicious, too, given the the, the use of, of FISA in Section 702 and, and the number of Americans who were maybe searched. Um, it sounds like there's just growing suspicion. And I wonder when you when you look at the Durham report and the whistleblowers and sort of all of it, um, you know, what should we be what kind of conversation should we we be having about the FBI?
0: When it comes to the Durham report, regardless of where you fall in the political aisle, the FBI should be consistent in how they do investigations to include what information they're going to take into consideration as probable cause or reasonable suspicion. Here we saw a case where the FBI was very willing in some cases to believe certain information, but disregarded other information in other cases that has to stop if we're going to have confidence in the FBI. And again, the men and the women of the FBI are not the issue. It's the leadership of the FBI that needs to address this. Director Ray has taken some steps, but I think they're not enough. And we have to continue to insist on nothing but excellence and absolute unbiasedness in the FBI.
1: And finally, um, John, you know, what do you think about the future of Section 702? We know DNI Haynes; she's been asking at every hearing she attends. She says, "Let me let me ask you guys to reauthorize that Section 702 for us." I mean, it sounds like everybody in the intelligence community keeps saying, you know, we need this tool um, in terms of investigating foreign adversaries would be would be terrorist plots that you know that could harm our country, but. I mean, you're hearing from Democrats as well. Ron Wyden in the Senate from Oregon, Jerry Nadler, they're they're really questioning giving the FBI this, this tool again um, of, of Section 702. And I just wonder, it expires at the end of the year. What do you think the future holds for this?
0: I think Section 702 is essential for the FBI to be able to carry out the mission of combating terrorism. But just because... People have violated in the past doesn't mean that can't be corrected and that can't be controlled. I think the answer is strong leadership and training to make sure people do what they're supposed to do. But if the American people want to be safe, they have to count on the FBI and give them the tools to keep them safe.
1: Former FBI agent John Yannarelli, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me.
5: Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at FoxBusinessPodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Subscribe to this podcast at FoxNewsPodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News
2: commentary. Andy Puzder. What's on your mind?
4: It's difficult to effectively teach others about something you don't understand. It's even tougher when the subject is something you despise. So if you live in Colorado and expect your children to learn anything truthful about free market capitalism, you'd better teach them at home. The Colorado Teachers Association, the state's teachers pension union, recently passed a resolution expressing its belief that, quote, capitalism inherently exploits children, public schools, land, labor and resources and opposes fully addressing systemic racism, climate change, patriarchy, gender, and LGBTQ disparities, education inequality, and income inequality, close quote. And that was the toned-down version. I thought it was a bad thing when the teachers' unions fought to keep schools closed during the pandemic. But maybe in Colorado, kids are better off staying at home if at school they're taught by people who believe this kind of leftist claptrap. So let's set the record straight. Capitalism is the greatest engine for relieving human suffering ever devised by the mind of man. As free market capitalism spread across the globe beginning in the early 1800s, economic productivity per person, that's GDP per capita, has soared, while the percentage of people living in extreme poverty has fallen off a cliff, dropping from about 90% in 1820 to under 9% today, according to the World Bank. Wealth soars, poverty plummets. That sounds like a pretty good system. But did capitalism achieve these laudable goals by encouraging greed, exploitation, and inequality, as the Colorado Teachers Union professes? Nope. In fact, the opposite is true. Any businessman or woman can attest you can only succeed in a capitalist economy by meeting the needs of other people, that is, by providing the products or services other people want at a price they can afford. To be a successful capitalist, you have to shift your personal focus outward to meet the needs and wants of others, your customers. That's closer to altruism than greed. Throughout our history, self-made men and women at all levels of our economy have forged ahead with innovative ideas and solutions that created jobs, wealth, and prosperity, not only for themselves, but for our entire nation, improving the lives of their fellow citizens and the human condition. That's how capitalism works. In short, capitalism expands the range of freedoms in our occupational lives while encouraging us to satisfy the needs of others. In so doing, it empowers us to create the wealth that supports real charity for the helpless and real opportunities for those willing and able to help themselves. It has enriched our lives and greatly reduced the plague of poverty that dominated human existence for millennia. Unfortunately, students in Colorado will never hear any of this in school, not if the union that represents their teachers has its way. Rather, they'll be fed a Marxist laundry list of grievances by the very people their parents trust to educate them. I'm Andy Puster, Senior Fellow at Pepperdine University School of Public Policy. I'm Emily Campagno and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast, bringing you closer to the story than you ever thought possible. Subscribe at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. These are the stories that keep you up at night.